Hello and welcome to Bed Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. Um, my throat is a bit hoarse. I apologise. I've had a cold and lost my voice, so I'm a little bit croaky through this episode. Um, my guest today is Ruby Warrington, journalist, editor and author of a new book, Women Without Kids. We uh, spoke about why so many women are um, now either choosing not to have children, ending up not having children, how much of a grey area there is between being um, childless and child-free, as the terminology has it. We also spoke about uh, men not having children and why there doesn't seem to be anywhere near as much interest paid to um, to uh, childless men as to childless women, and about what a society that had respected roles for people without children might look like and how to balance that question of um, both encouraging family formation but also not... Um, stigmatizing and ostracizing people who don't have families for whatever reason in the extended version of the episode um, we then went on to talk about some of the social and political consequences of falling birth rates and the aging society and uh, the political questions that all of this raises that extended version of the episode is uh, at louiseperry.substack.com where as ever you will find the uh, back catalog of extended episodes the um, MMM chat community, and also the bonus episodes I do fortnightly with my husband. Enjoy. Many of you will know that Christianity is a subject of fascination for me, and the role of Christianity in shaping the modern world is a theme I return to again and again on the podcast. My view is that we really can't understand the world or ourselves without getting to grips with it, which is why I'm very glad to point you towards a new online course called 321. It's an introduction to Christianity that's imaginative, thoughtful, engaging. It assumes absolutely no prior knowledge. It's presented by the wonderful Glenn Scrivener, who has been a guest on the MMM podcast previously and I've also been a guest on his show. Glenn presents eight video-led sessions which are based around some beautiful animated stories that illustrate the Christian message. You can check it out for free at 321course.com forward slash MMM. Just enter your email, choose a password and you're in. There's no spam, there's no fees, just visit 321course.com forward slash MMM. And now onto the show. I really respect you for coming on the po- on this podcast because, uh, like, from the get go, my audience are going to have a pronatalist bias, right? Because that's something that I talk and write about quite a lot. Um, but I think that you, I think your book is very good. I think that you put forward some very important arguments, and I and I and I I think it's very important to have respectful conversations about these these things and um i think that that i think that makes for valuable listening for for audiences who who aren't necessarily persuaded from the get-go so thank you for coming on (laughs) thank you for having me on because i sort of you know it's a bit of a punt when i emailed you saying hey how about this conversation i actually think there's so much crossover in our work which isn't immediately obvious probably to people who are looking at it from the outside and i feel like the 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 points of view of women without children, whether it's by choice or by circumstance, are so rarely taken into consideration when we're talking about family policy, family formation, population, et cetera, et cetera. And yet our decisions about our reproductive capacity are integral to those conversations. But as you know, women without kids have always been sidelined and seen as the anomaly and the odd ones out. And so 
our views and, and experiences are not really taken into account. And yet they're actually at the heart of this conversation. It's a, it's a well, it's a very emotive conversation. Full stop. One of the things that's that's emotive from the get go is terminology, because um, you'll know, of course, that there's this kind of tension between words childless and child free. So childless is often taken as being stigmatizing, seen as something negative. Child free is a term that some people opt for who are voluntarily child free and are sort of. Uh, trying to present that in a more positive light. You have a term which I find very interesting, which is like a third a third option, which maybe better describes your own experience. Yes. Um, to speak a little bit about to that, that binary in a way, this um, the child-free versus the childless, the ones who can't have kids versus the ones who won't have kids. In the book, I do sort of look at a lot of the gray area that exists in between these two extremes. Um, to point out that actually for many people it's not as clear-cut as this like life-affirming yes i want to have children this is my purpose this is where i know i'll find my fulfillment to this sort of selfish cold-hearted narcissistic no there's no way i want to have children that's not something i want anything to do with i think for the majority of people who don't have children their choices and experiences lie somewhere sort of in between there's a term childless by circumstance which is used to describe people who possibly might have had children if things had worked out differently, if they'd met somebody that they wanted to co-parent with on time, if their financial situation was different, if they'd reached a different point in their career, um, or if they'd been raised in a different sort of a family. Like there are a lot of people who are questioning whether they want to have children and maybe not prioritizing forming a family of their own who identify as coming from quite dysfunctional family backgrounds and have reservations about whether they want to recreate that in their lives, which is something that's very, very rarely spoken about. So yeah, I think there is a huge amount of gray area. And I actually discovered in, um, I started writing the book in 2020. And that summer, a paper came out of the maternal psychology lab at Columbia University on a new concept termed reproductive identity. The authors of this white paper are essentially saying we've reached a point um, where we need more terminology to describe people's varied um, experiences um, of engaging with their reproductive potential. And so one term I found myself using <laughs> after the book had come out was a reproductive. It just sort of came out very naturally in an interview where I was trying to describe to somebody how I had how I felt about reproductive my own sort of reproductive capacity. And it honestly feels to me like this wasn't really a decision. I didn't choose to be child free because of all the benefits that come with child freedom. I never had any desire to have children. It was just not something that had ever been even a question for me. The only questioning I did around my decision not to have children was based on other people questioning me. Why do you not want to do this? Why are you not going to do this? Um, the implication being that I most definitely should <laughs> and that there was probably something wrong with me if I didn't want to do it. But um, in the same way that some people describe themselves or identify as being asexual, meaning just having no desire for any kind of engagement sexually, um, I feel the same way about my reproduction. I just feel that I was made this way. And now, of course, I kind of go in the book into some sort of Detail, I suppose, is to try and to unpick whether that is due to nature or nurture and getting into was I born, if I was born this way, well, how much was, has, did the family situation that I was born into influence this 
just feeling about not wanting to have children. So yeah, it's a very, it's, it's such a nuanced subject, you know, which hasn't been necessarily treated that way or seen that way. And I think it's one that lends itself to caricatures as well. And the, I suppose the, the, the caricature that you'll hear on the right sometimes, which I'm sure you've come across, is that the reason that birth rates are plummeting, you know, I say this as someone who's, cause I'm, cause I'm writing a book about birth rates dropping. And so I'm, I'm like delving into this discourse a lot and a, a narrative that you'll hear on the right quite often, which I really don't like is that this is all to do with uh, sort of girl bosses. This is all to do with feminist ideology, it discouraging women from having children. And it, it really places all of the emphasis on um, women not having children, not men not having children. It does take two to tango, right? Um, but you don't hear as much about the men. Um, and seeing it all in kind of ideological terms. And like, look, I think ideology does play a role in this and I want to talk more about this you know because I because there are there are obviously competing ideologies in in the mix around um, natalism but I, I I mean I think you the figure that you give in the book which I've heard elsewhere is something like 90% of women who don't end up having children didn't did want them maybe they were a bit ambivalent or you know but like they they didn't they weren't dead set against motherhood it just didn't happen for various reasons like and that's that is mostly what we're talking about when we talk about people not having children. The 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 uh, a, a, a reproductive position is a, is a, is an unusual one, and I think what's also really unusual is is the sort of um, really strident feminist position in opposition to motherhood. Is I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I think that it's I think its power is of, often really overstated. And normally, actually, what we're talking about is much more murky social and material kind of questions that are influencing people's uh, people's family formation mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah this the the figure of 90 percent i think it's actually around 80 percent these are the latest the most recent figures that i have been able to find on this and they're from about 2010 so really quite outdated at this point i think but it's around 10 percent are resolutely child free i do not want this it's a conscious choice i'm making for myself i have never wanted this in a lot of cases and about 10 percent are more on the kind of this is my life purpose it's the only thing that i want to do it's in fact it's what i'm biologically wired to do and if i do not do it i will have failed in my my mission of being human <laughs> and the 80 percent who exist in between are those childless by circumstance like not necessarily sitting there you know sort of weeping into their pillows at home bemoaning or sort of bewailing the fact that they haven't been able to make this this beloved dream come true but more so just have for whatever reason, prioritized other things. And a lot of the time, those reasons do come down to the economic inequality, which is what the feminist movement at its heart was really about addressing a lot of the time. You know, so much about creating gender equality was about enabling women to be self-sufficient financially and not to have to depend on a man for their material well-being, their and their children's material well-being. And of course, inherent in that is the decoupling of sex from reproduction for women, because actually it is becoming a mother that makes a woman dependent in some way on others. I think you have heard you speak about this. I, I use this line specifically in my book. When you have dependence, you need others that you can depend on, right? Because you're your ability to be self-sufficient is inherently diminished as soon as you become a mother. 
And so I think that this is all very much intertwined. Yes, part of the, you know, what's really driving the girl boss kind of, I'm going to be a strong, independent woman and make my own money and compete with at the same level as men. It's sort of like this idea of like, I want financial independence on steroids. <laughs> but really, that comes from, well, what's the alternative being dependent? And actually, that has historically been potentially very damaging and limiting for women and for children. And so I think there's, I don't know, there's just a lot of overlap, you know. I agree. Uh, the nature of having children as a woman is it does force you into a, a state of into into relationships of dependency not only obviously with your children being dependent on you but then you end up being dependent on other adults and those are those are tricky and i don't think that we should shy away from recognizing how wrong those can go um and and i i, I, I as you'll know i mean i am also very pro marriage for precisely this reason that i think it's the i think it's the best relationship of dependency that you can have again it's because there aren't really other especially good alternatives, and there are ways that it can go wrong. I don't share the view of some feminists, second wave feminists, that we should just reject it entirely. I think that like lesbian separatism is a very internally coherent ideology. Like I respect it for that. But I think that it's not, I think most, I think the vast majority of women are not going to opt for lesbian separatism. And given that, you know, marriage is the best situation in which to have children, um, but uh, but yes, yeah, I, I agree with I you. Mean, it's a, full of a, happy, a happy, healthy marriage. Yes, a new book just came out, which I'm sure you're aware of. It's called The Two Parent Privilege. Um, and so I've been actually this morning penning an essay in response to it, which I very, very rarely do these days. I don't really have the time to write sort of personal essays and things. But um, <clears throat> she actually, she, you know, the whole book is predicated on that idea, like children fare by far the best being raised not only in a, a, a home where the parents are cohabiting, but where they're actually married, because marriage adds another layer of responsibility and commitment to keeping that, ensuring that that union prevails. But she also adds the caveat, unless there's a violent or abusive or erratic parent in the home, in which case the children, it's the opposite. <laughs> so marriage, a good, healthy marriage is, is the ideal. And I think that one thing I talk about in my book, I don't know if you got into this part, I talk about family. There's a chapter called Found Family, where I talk about how the influence of technology actually on human relationships in general and how our increased reliance on particularly apps, whether it's dating apps, whether it's social media, whether it is, but whether it's apps for things like ordering your takeout or the whole, the whole, all of app culture, which is so dominant in our lives, is about convenience, which means that it's a lot of the time about eliminating the need for hu actual human interaction, which is inherently inconvenient. <laughs> and so the more we kind of lean into these kind of uber, uber convenient, seamless lives, the less our, the, our capacity for actually forging those deep, vulnerable human connections that are the kinds of connections that ideally would you know form the foundation of a stable home environment to raise children in is being eroded every step of the way and i just think that's something that also just isn't really spoken about you know the wider culture that people are forming relationships in yet alone trying to raise children in i mean speaking to women um who have um either not had children yet or have ended up not having children and not by choice, by circumstance. Um, the number one thing that I hear is it's the difficult thing is finding the right man. Right. 
And it's one of those issues that I, to which I don't have an easy, there isn't an easy response. There's no tax break for that, you know? I mean, there, there isn't. Yeah. Um, and it, a lot I think of times it's genuinely very women, hard. These same women, particularly by, you know, typically sort of middle-aged white male demographers who like to, you know, lay a lot of the blame for imminent population collapse on these very women that we're that we're talking about <laughs> will be told that they're being too picky they need to work harder on their relationships and yet again the impetus falls on women to you know get with the program and make it work where there is very in fact i listened to there was an interview sorry it's on my mind so i'm probably bringing it up all the time but the author of the two parent privilege i can't remember melissa kearney i think was on um, Barry Weiss's podcast last week. And the whole book talks about unmarried mothers, single mothers. And as much as she says, I'm not shaming these people, there's a tinge of shame to that, that terminology. Like the whole idea of being a single mother is very stigmatized in the way that being a single father isn't. Um, and she explicitly says in that interview, you know, I really made an effort not to use the term deadbeat dads in this book. And I just thought, why not? <laughs> Why not? What about what about looking at why there are so few, um, yeah, seemingly so few marriageable or you know dad material males in the dating pool at the moment? I don't think that's that's not spoken about nearly enough. So I feel like I'll say that a lot during this podcast. Why don't we talk about this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know. Let's talk about men. I mean, um, so I believe that some of the reason why demographers tend to focus more on women is partly because it's the way we tend to do the data um that we, we basically we count more easily how many children a woman has had than a man because of paternal uncertainty makes it sometimes difficult to know which which so that's one factor but i also think it is true as you say that there is more stigma attached to single mothers than there is to single fathers even though the single mothers are typically the ones who stuck around and they're doing the right thing by their children, whereas the deadbeat dads, I'm very happy to use the deadbeat dads, whereas the deadbeat dads have have have, um, have left. Um, I want to also think about uh, childless or, or, or child-free or whatever terminology we're using, um, men, because I feel like we hear so much less about them, um, even though, uh, to my knowledge, it's roughly the same proportions as with women i mean you'd expect that with the number Given i don't know every, maybe there's unevenness child or pregnancy is the result of a, a male and a female yes there might be even more proportionately childless men because there might be a minority of men who are having lots of children with different women so that, so there are definitely a goodish chunk of men who aren't having children and um i feel like we don't hear from them and maybe that's because men are less interested in in writing about the side of their lives. I've wondered whether it also might be because men's reproductive um, window is a lot longer, that men can theoretically be having children into their 70s even, that men don't reach that point in their lives where they think, oh, I'm not going to have children now. Like, it's over now. It's This is a definite thing until they're quite uh, elderly, potentially. So maybe that, I don't know. What do you think? Why is it that we don't, we, we, we hear about, women not having children and we so rarely hear about men not having children. Yeah, I think all of those reasons that you just touched on, I think that also <laughs> womanhood is synonymous with motherhood or has been. And that, you know, it's only very, very recently in the grand scheme of things that that is starting not to be the case. And so there's just so many centuries, centuries, centuries of cultural conditioning around women and motherhood, you know, 
Um, and I think we're still, we're, we're sort of in the work of undoing that in some ways. And um, that hasn't really existed for men. And why is that? Well, it is because it is women who bear the responsibility for reproduction. You know, we are the ones who become pregnant, we're the ones who gestate babies, we're the ones who risk our lives giving birth to children, we're the ones who nurse children. There is just a deeper connection between women and children than there is between men and children biologically and therefore culturally and socially. And I think that, yes, what we've seen in the past literal, you know, 50 going on maybe 60 years with the advent of the sexual revolution is finally a, you know, decoupling of female sexuality from reproduction. It's very, very new. And so I think that the um, conditioning that we have around women, womanhood is synonymous with motherhood is still still very present. And so, yes, there's a lot more focus on, but I think you're absolutely right. Like for any woman, whether or not to have children and very importantly, under what circumstances and with whom is absolutely central to her life because of the impact that it will have on her material well-being in a way that it isn't central to men's lives. And it is a question that she is forced to reckon with in her 30s and going into maybe her early 40s in this day and age. Um, although actually, no, I did some research once, you know, women have had children into their 40s throughout history. Um, into their 50s. There's a Wikipedia, sorry right. to interrupt you, but there's a Wikipedia okay. page of, of like oldest mothers. It's fascinating. Um, which is crazy. It is, it really yeah. is. And it's not always IVF. You do occasionally have yes. women who still have children in their 50s naturally. Yes. Um, and normally it's like 60s. their 15th yeah. or something child. Right, exactly. um, But yes, sorry, go on. Little, yes, um, I mean, I just think that um, the whole idea that women can exist as non-mothers, whatever the reasons for that, is very sort of new in terms of it being a main, more mainstream concept. And so I don't think that men have had the same conditioning around my duty is to be a father, you know, my, my ultimate purpose, my biological imperative is to be a father. But if we're saying that human sexual, the, per, the biological purpose of human sexuality is reproduction, which I think we, you know, it's one of the, one of the purposes, um, that applies equally to men and women, surely. Um, but yes, men haven't, don't have the same yeah, haven't had the same level of sort of conditioning around this is this must be central to your life. How much do you think of it as conditioning and how much is it is it biological? Do you think that there's an interplay between the two? I mean, I, I do agree with you, um, and I do and I have a lot of sympathy for the the experience that I've heard from lots of women who who are who are a reproductive, who don't have a maternal um drive, where they're constantly asked when you're gonna have kids, whatever, and it feels um it feels coercive. I think that's true. I think that what's kind of um, slightly, slightly counterintuitive is I think what we simultaneously have in the culture is is that kind of uh, pressure that you'll often get from your relatives, right? Combined with actually having quite an antenatal culture in terms of how we actually treat families and children once they come along. <laughs> so, yeah, and those two things are sort of intention. And then you have this small element, which I don't think is that... Um, is, is newer and I think less influential, which is the sort of uh, the feminist antinatalist position. But I think the main drivers are these two kind of like you should have children, but also once we have them, you know, you have them, it is going to be, yeah, you're, you're on your own. <laughs> you're on your right, own. Exactly. Lady. And I think <laughs> yeah. so much of that, the attitude you're describing, the second attitude there is 
very much tied up with the sort of dominant, what has, again, has been, I think it's changing the dominant narrative, but that somehow women are not only biologically wired to reproduce, but we're also biologically wired to nurture and care for children. And that therefore this is a labor of love. It's something that comes naturally to women and it should not be compensated or recognized as actually a job that has economic value as well. Um, and so I think that so much of the unwillingness to kind of offer real, real support to mothers in the raising of their children come, stems from this very attitude that women are sort of biologically wired to be mothers and should therefore be able to sort of take motherhood in their stride without needing any instruction, without really needing any kind of yeah, economic support or recognition in terms of policies about how hard it is, especially in the current climate, right? Which, you know, I talk about what I call survival of the fittest economics, which is very much predicated on an individual's ability to show up and be productive in the workforce continually throughout their adult lives. Um, that doesn't make any room for the work of child rearing, which is a full-time job, actually. I was, I've been reflecting recently, a friend of mine just had, my, one of my best friends just had a baby and she was in a very fortunate position where for the first month she could pay for someone to, she could pay for meals, she could pay for a cook for the first month. And she was sort of dreading that this was coming to an end and she could only afford it for this short period of time. And it made me reflect on, I don't cook. I very rarely cook because I just don't have the time. The thought of compiling a grocery list, going to the store, cooking the food, cleaning up after the meal is overwhelming to me. And I don't have any dependents apart from my cat. The thought that even supplying meals for a household on a daily basis unrelentingly is not actually a, 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 a job is <laughs> just, um, just maddening. And I think this is where there's so much... Um, as you said, it, there's so much tension between this side, this this pressure that women are put under to get with the procreative program. Not least because, hey, we're heading for population collapse, and you know, if we don't have if we don't have enough young people paying into the economy, then we're screwed. Um, that's a huge amount of pressure. But then on the same, on the you know, on the other hand, we'll also just, as you said, just just sort of get on with it. We're not actually going to support you in that endeavor in any sort of meaningful way. The cultural setup that we have right now, an economic setup, is not conducive to having, to encouraging big families. I mean, people do it. It's this funny, it, it, it's so often said, and I see why, it seems very intuitive, that people can't afford to have children. Mm. In But that covers up so much. I, 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 the, <laughs> the thing that's really counterintuitive about it is actually poorer people have more children. Like they're obviously not having them in ideal circumstances. I wouldn't want to have 10 children in a two bedroom house or whatever. I'm descended. We're also descended from people who did that. You don't want to recommend that as a, as a good setup. Um, but it's also, it's actually perversely the case. If you look at the data that people, when people get richer, they have fewer children, even though they could theoretically invest more resources in it. I think it's partly because people have more choices available to them when they have when they get richer and so children kind of fall down the priorities list it's also just having access to contraception right because obviously if you don't have access to reliable contraception it's not really up to you how many children you have well because we you know we we are um we clearly have a well not everyone but most people have a strong sex drive and in a period without contraception 
that naturally led to having children, whereas of course now it doesn't. So the so the two have been um, decoupled. Um, going back to the maternal, there's I mean there's a lot to talk about in there, but just going back for a moment <laughs> for the show, yeah. the maternal instinct thing being yes. conditioned. How conditioned do you think it is? Like I'm I'm minded to think that it is like mostly true like that maternal instinct is mostly a real biological thing but that there are surely cases where women don't have it for some reason and it, and they are under social pressure to pretend that they do i wouldn't go so far as to say the whole thing is conditioned i think it probably i think instinct must be playing quite a significant role what do you think so one thing i want to do to begin is to differentiate baby fever which might describe the urge to, I want to have a child, and not only that, I want to gestate a child and be pregnant with maternal instinct, which is I want to nurture children and raise a family. I think they're actually two slightly distinct things. So I did speak to an evolutionary biologist about this. I also knew, because I'd heard her speaking on a podcast, on a radio interview on Radio 4, actually, that she would tell me what I wanted to hear. I'm a journalist too, Louise, and so I definitely know how to <laughs> seek out I know how it works, yeah. Back up my argument. <laughs> um, but she said, stated in no uncertain terms, there is no such thing as a biological urge to reproduce. What human beings have is a, is a sex drive, which is essentially a drive for orgasm. Now, we also know that in women, orgasm is not essential for procreation, whereas it is in men, which I think is interesting, and that's something I I didn't quite go into in the book, but I think I will in my rewrite of the applicable chapter for the paperback, <laughs> because I think it actually has really interesting implications about male entitlement in general. Anyway, um, so she was sort of saying, by a lot, from an evolutionary biology, biology, biology perspective, what humans need to be doing is having lots, having lots of sex, and then eventually children will come along, and then it's helpful if there is a natural instinct to look after, as in protect, feed, nurture those young infants. That biological maternal instinct can be attributed to, when a person becomes the chief caregiver for an infant, there is an increase in size in the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that monitors the threat. <clears throat> I heard you speaking on an episode, I think I was listening to it yesterday, where you were talking about this almost incessant sort of OCD checking of whether or not your child is breathing. This is probably your amygdala going, hey, hey, threat, imminent threat, you know? Now, what's really interesting is I think it was around 2014, studies were done on gay male couples who had adopted children or had children by surrogate as to whether they experienced the same brain changes. And they did. And so this is not this maternal, maternal instinct, which is this desire to protect young infants, isn't necessarily predicated on sex. It's more about the actual caregiving role that a person finds themselves in. Now, of course, typically that has traditionally been women. Um, but yes, I did think it was really interesting. Gillian Ragsdale was the name of the person I spoke to, and she sort of said, you know, when when rabbits have sex, they're not thinking about making more rabbits. They're just pursuing, they're just following this instinct to have sex. And she said to me, you know, if you, if you woke up on a desert island tomorrow and your mind had been entirely wiped of what it means to be a human being, she said, on no level would you be thinking, I want to find someone and have a baby with them. You would be looking for food and water and you would probably masturbate at some point, but you would not be thinking, I must reproduce, you know? So that's, that's where I landed on that. But I think 
Of course, there is a sex drive, and yes, enough sex, enough, and I will say enough procreative sex leads to children. But then how do we explain homosexuality? How do we explain masturbation? How do we explain any non-penetrative sex? <laughs> and humans desire and urge for those kinds of sexual activities. So what do you think is going on with baby fever then? As distinct so from baby fever, so there's a fascinating book. I think you'd probably find it really interesting um, by an Israeli side, so social scientist called Orna Donat. It's called Regretting Motherhood. She describes baby fever as often very much about a desire, a very real desire for family, a real desire for intimacy with other human beings, a very real desire for being seen as valid and a respectable member of your community. So she would say that it is entirely conditioned, but of course she's also coming off the back of speaking to lots of women who are like, wait, I was, I thought I was, bam actually I was bamboozled into this. This isn't what I wanted for myself personally. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. And I think it'd be really interesting for more studies to be done on this subject, you know, how much of this is conditioning and how much of this is, is biology. Yeah. I, um, I've never had, um, sort of, uh, Real baby fever, I suppose. I've I've heard women speak about it as like a very very intense thing. Sometimes a I think particularly yearning. <laughs> yes, and particularly if you're going through IVF, IVF seems to mm. trigger like very intense emotional phenomena. Um, partly because of the hormones you have to take to to um, trigger ovulation, and um, partly because it, it's just a fairly brutal process of like, will it be this month? Oh no, I've just lost another 10 grand. Or and I think whatever. there's a lot, really of, horrible. Um, a lot of fear of failure tied up in that as well. And this idea right. that if I can't do this, then I am not a valid woman. Then there's something, you know, terribly wrong with me. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've heard women talk about having very intense baby fever. I've never experienced it per se, but I have been finding lately that we have a, we have a two and a half year old and, um, I find myself when he was first, when he was little, I didn't look at other babies out and about and think, oh, I want another one. It took a little while until I thought I want another one. And now when I'm out and about and I see a little baby, I look like greedily at the little baby and I'm like, oh, I'd, like, I've, I'd, love, I'd love to have another baby, which I, I, maybe is baby fever. I, I mean, I, so I, I, think, I think it is clearly the case that one's degree of sort of one's broodiness, shall we say, mm, to use a less scientific yes. term, is um, varies between individuals. It clearly does. And I think I've always been a more broody person and some people just clearly, uh, just clearly aren't. There is clearly natural variation um, between individuals. And I guess pre-contraception, um, your reproductive system didn't care, especially if you had sex, then you would have children and that was that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I, yeah, I mean, you know, speaking, there are, definitely women in my family lineage who I think probably would should not have been mothers because it was very deeply incompatible with who they were as individuals and it caused a huge amount of pain and suffering and I think that's in lots of people's family histories as well um so the the, the opening chapter of the book I called the motherhood spectrum and as much as talking about this idea of like the can't have kids versus the won't have kids I also speak about actually rather than this being a purely biological instinct, 
it makes absolute sense that everything from a person's basic personality to the family they were raised in, to the community that they're growing up in, to the religious programming that they've received, to their relationship status, to their financial status, all of these things are going to impact a person's desire and aptitude for parenthood. And actually, isn't it great that we have the choice um, or the opportunity rather to weigh all of these factors into what is an irreversible lifelong decision that is going to impact every single aspect of our lives in perpetuity. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I do. Yeah, of course, there is a biological urge. And when I actually spoke to I spoke to a dear, dear friend of mine who had had twins after multiple rounds of very grueling IVF. Um, and I sort of, I just wanted to know what made you keep going? It just looked so terribly painful. Um, what made you keep going? And she just said, well, you know, I just felt like I had so much love that inside of me that I just wanted to give to another human being. I just needed somewhere to put this love that I had inside me, which, immediately did sort of trigger in me all of those stereotypes about child-free women being uncaring and unloving and not having this sort of nurturing gene, which we so pride and um, we so admire in women and we so compliment women for, right? Any woman who chooses a life of the mind over family life will be seen as inherently uncaring, which is obviously, well, I'd hope it's obvious that that's not true, you know? Um, and hearing her describe this, this sort of just this urge, I suppose, to kind of give of herself in this way, it made me think about the way I've always felt about my ideas. You know, I've always from a very young child had just ideas for things I wanted to put into the world and things that I wanted to do. And I feel like, you know, at this point, I've published six, seven books. I had quite a successful career in journalism in the UK. And people will often talk to look at me and sort of say, wow, you're really prolific. You've really done, done a lot with your career. And I have. And I think I've actually been driven by a similar sort of urge to what she was describing. I just have so much that I want to put out into the world. But for me, it, it makes mo the most sense, taking all of those kind of factors I touched on into account, for me to focus on that in a from a career perspective. A dear friend of mine and uh, and former guest on this show, Nina Power, um, we've spoken about this quite a lot. She doesn't have children, has never, she's not, she's probably not quite always dead against it, but certainly like ambivalent leaning anti. And um, uh, it's this really difficult balance. And I think this might be a point where we disagree a little bit about what exactly society ought to encourage. Because society has to encourage something. It's it's not really possible to say uh, the, the nature of human sociality is that we we respond to other people's opinions on things, and that uh, you know, like we there's always going to be some kind of template that people glom onto, I suppose. And what I was talking about with, with Nina is the fact that probably in another era, she would have been like an incredibly intellectual nun or something like that like in the like in the best possible way I'm saying yeah. in that she's always she's she describes herself as like a bit witchy a bit eccentric very into she's a philosopher like very intellectual not very maternal and those women always exist every culture has these women and the and the male counterpart of course and what role do they have 
is an important question. You know, what if if women are not going to have the traditional feminine life course? Um, how can their skills sort of best be utilized? And actually, we were saying that in a way, the like nunneries are quite <laughs> quite like I, it sounds like I'm joking. Like nunneries historically have often been sites of of intellectual activity and of charitable work and of teaching and of all sorts of things that women can perform extremely well. And it's a way of women not having children in, a, in an otherwise very traditional culture, but still having social status, which is actually quite a hard thing to achieve. But, I, but my view, and I think you might disagree with me on this, but we'll see, is that the, what a society ought to try and project is it, it ought to try and encourage is basically motherhood and fatherhood as the default with respected high status alternatives available for people who don't end up having children and and that's a, but but i don't think that what society should encourage is not having children as the default because i think for most people that's not not only because there are economic and social problems which we might get onto, but because I think actually most people do want to have children and do feel happiest when they have children. But there are clearly exceptions, and how do you deal with that is quite a, quite a difficult question. I do largely agree with you. <laughs> I also think that what most people want to begin here is to feel like they belong and that they have a place to belong. And traditionally, families have been the place where we belong. And so to create you know, to create more of you, more of your family creates more reasons and opportunities to feel like you belong. So I think that's a very innate human drive. Um, and yes, absolutely. Women without kids have traditionally been outcasts. So it has been a very challenging path to walk. You know, the witch trials, the witch hunts of the sort of 15th, 16th century did a really good job of eradicating a lot of women who didn't pursue that traditional feminine path if you want to get a bit bitchy about it <laughs> um women who who perhaps might otherwise if they were you know going with the sort of christian tradition would might have become nuns actually um but were yeah you know many of the heretics of i think 15th century were specifically you know abstaining from child rearing because of what they saw as corruption in the church and they didn't like the fact that the church had so much power not least so much economic power in communities and so were specifically withdrawing from reproductive duties in what could be considered a sort of early stage birth strike which i think we're actually seeing some ripples of in the current move away from procreation um so, yeah, I think what you're talking about is what is the ideal normal? You know, this is something else that Orna Donut talks about in her work, that there's this ideal normal, which is married, heterosexual, married with children, you know. And I think that in some cultures, you could also add white to that, you know. Um, and that has been the ideal normal for the vast part of the, at least the past century, a um, couple of cent few centuries, um, and that anybody who doesn't fit into that ideal normal is then, you know, persecuted in some way, shape or form. And we've definitely seen that. So I think it's like, what would be the ideal normal going forward, you know? And I think that reverting back to the ideal normal of the 1950s isn't necessarily, it's not inclusive enough for people who don't, who don't fit for whatever reason, you know? And so I think, yeah, I love your idea about 
and this is what I, you know, in the, in the book, I can't remember if I explicitly state this, but in no way, shape and form with women without kids, am I encouraging, trying to encourage anybody not to have children? If anything, I'm really shining a light on why it's so difficult for people to enthusiastically embark on the path, path of parenthood. And, you know, let's start having real conversations about what would make that easier for people and more appealing to people as well, you know? And also, as part of that, let's valorize the path of non-parenthood for people who have been unable, for whatever reason, to fulfill that ideal normal um, and sort of look at what other ways we can... So there's a, a you know, um, social psychologist, Eric Erickson. He did a lot of work around what he saw as the sort of seven stages of psychosocial development. I think the sixth stage of which is what he called generativity. Parenting sort of comes under generativity. Generativity is any kind of activity which in some way contributes to the greater good and in particular sort of to the good of the future generations. And he talked about generativity taking many different forms. For example, he talked about cultural parents and the idea that, you know, people who have any kind of sway in the wider culture outside of the home actually also have a responsibility to future generations. And I think that is something that we're seeing an absolutely massive dearth of both in politics and particularly in business and particularly in Silicon Valley. <laughs> so I think that, you know, bringing back this idea of what it means to actually be a responsible human, regardless of whether you're a parent and how all of our actions today have an impact on future generations is somewhere we should really be looking as well. And I think that actually, people in Silicon Valley who seem intent on eradicating the need for human beings whatsoever altogether um, should be held to account, actually, for what's happening um, with the, you know, beyond sort of like industrialized automation, but moving into AI and things, you know, so many of these technologies are being introduced into the economy not to free humans up to spend more time with their loved ones and you know live more productive and fulfilling lives outside of work but to do away with the need for human labor altogether in order to keep down the cost of production and maximize profits which i just think again why why are economists and demographers not talking about this when we're looking at you know looming population collapse are we being good ancestors i can't remember whose quote that is possibly I want to say um, John Maynard Keynes, but I might be making that up. Anyway, it's a good line. Are we being good ancestors? The term that's used in um, some Catholics use is spiritual motherhood and spiritual fatherhood. So when you're not actually, not biological motherhood and fatherhood, but having, but playing a role of some fashion for other people that is that of a spiritual mother and father, which I think is very beautiful. And is also, you know, not just for people who don't or can't have children, but I think for all of us actually to be, better spiritual mothers and fathers in different areas of our lives, I think is, um, yeah. And I think that there's a very noble role for the spiritual mother and father in societies where, as we've said, um, it's not very easy raising children often, not so much because of lack of money per se, but because of lack of social support and and the, the disintegration of the extended family. And um, I think those that's where people can people who don't want to have children or can't have children for whatever reason have a role to play in raising the next generation in terms of being um helpful and and available and offering you know 
all of it's the always, all the good it's things. It's always very helpful to have some spare adults around to pick up the slack when the people who are doing the actual hands-on parenting reach the end of their rope, you know? And so, yeah, it's interesting though, because I've had conversations with mum friends about this and they're like, no, I don't need you to be cooking me dinner or showing up to like, you know, help out with the housework. <laughs> like actually what I really value about our friendship is that I can hang out with you and forget about my kids and I can hang out with you and talk about things that are not to do with parenting and remember and stay connected to the woman that I am without my kids, because that's actually a really important part of my identity. And I, yeah, quite happily fulfill, fulfill that role. <laughs> the episode is not over. There is another maybe 30 minutes of content, but it is behind a paywall. If you would like access to that content, if you would like to show support for the show, pay subscriptions are what keep it on the road. Allow me to pay my producers, put food on the table, all that important stuff. The extended version of the podcast is available at my Substack, louiseperry.substack.com. That's where you can also find, as I say every week, bonus episodes, extended episodes, uh, the MMM chat community, all of this. Um, please sign up for a pay subscription. It makes such an enormous difference to my ability to keep producing the podcast and grow it even bigger, produce more episodes, all that good stuff. There are other ways that you can show your support for the show as well. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can like us on YouTube. You can tell your friends and family uh, how much you like the show. If you find it valuable, all of these things make an enormous difference to our ability to keep making it. Thank you so much. <laughs>